Father, we do long to have that kind of hunger and, and for Christ to be the center, to be our all in all, to be the, the driving force of our lives, to know the resurrection power of Christ in victory over sin. Thank you for our Bibles. Assist us in our study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want us to turn directly to the Scriptures this morning as we lay a foundation for returning to our Wisdom That Works series from Proverbs. I want us to go to the New Testament and I want us to read God's Word together as we are challenged um, by a concept that the Apostle Paul makes unequivocally clear. We begin in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These are familiar verses, I'm sure, to many of you. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 And I want you to see something here. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Roman believers. And uh, I'm reading out of the ESV. Many of you memorize these verses in the King James, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Beseech is a great word, isn't it? I beseech you. Even if you don't know what it means, you know what it means. I'm begging you. I I am appealing to you. I beseech you. Here we go. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Follow in your word of God. In your copy, I appeal to you, the ESV says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is always good and acceptable and perfect. Now you notice that word transform in there. Let me remind you that that's that word metamorphosis. You know that word if you remember the Incredible Hulk TV series, the movie, or the cartoon. Remember Bill Bixby, I think his name was, he transformed into the Hulk. If you know a worm to a butterfly, you know metamorphosis. Same DNA, but it absolutely transformed, doesn't look the same, doesn't act the same. There was a transformation. Notice what Paul's appeal is. After laying 11 chapters of doctrinal groundwork, he now goes to the heart of the matter and he says, because of everything I've taught you about your great salvation in Christ, I now beseech you, I appeal to you, therefore brothers, now he means the brethren in Christ, that's women and men together, by the mercies of God, and you finish the sentence for me, to present your... Bodies. That wasn't very good. Let's try that again. To present your... Yeah, yeah. What body are we talking about here, folks? What body are we talking about? (laughs) This body. So the Apostle Paul says, because of the great truths of your salvation and all of the working of God and His great mercies for you, I now am begging you that you must present your physical body to God. Isn't that interesting that God cares about our physical body? In fact, He cares about it so much that He wants us to lay down our physical bodies as a living sacrifice given over to Him in obedience. And that is part of our actual spiritual worship, the dedicating of our bodies to God. All right, let me continue to build my case a little bit here that God cares about our bodies And you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, would you? And the Apostle Paul personalizes it here. Yet again, another familiar passage. The Apostle Paul personalizes this. 
And look what he says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's using a metaphor of an athlete in a race, describing that as though it were the Christian life. Okay? Here's what it says. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Okay, we kind of know that. Now, he's not really saying that in the Christian life, if it's, if it's made like a race, that only one person's going to get to heaven. That's not the point. His point is, you know that guy that's in a race to win? You be like him. Let's continue reading. So run that you may obtain... You be like the guy who's out to win the prize in the race. Every athlete exercises self-control, discipline in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. It was a wreath of ivy that would dry up and fall apart. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable reward. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't just wander around the track. I run with intention, he says. I do not box as one beating the air. I'm not just shadow boxing or working out with a light bag, speed bag. I I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. Your Bible might even say, I beat my body. The Greek word translated in the ESV to discipline my body, it has the idea in the definition of the Greek word to get punched under the eye. I discipline my body. I punch myself under the eye to make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Look what he says. To discipline my... You finished... Did you say the word? To discipline my body. What body are we talking about here? Our physical body. And keep it under control lest after preaching... Here's where he personalizes it. He said, I, I am really concerned about this even in my own life, the Apostle Paul says, lest after preaching to the churches, to control their bodies, that somehow I would body fail myself and therefore disqualify myself. You know, if the Apostle Paul can fail and he was concerned about failure in body fail, we ought to be concerned about body fail from the youngest child who becomes aware of their body for the first time in their lives on up to the oldest of us, to the deacons, the elders, the pastors. The word is to all of us. God wants us to control our bodies. Let's go to one more passage. This is Paul teaching the first, the Thessalonian believers in his first letter that is recorded for us under the inspiration of the Spirit in this complete and sufficient word that we have, this final word. We need no other word from God. We have it right here, and it's a good word, isn't it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and begin with verse 3. Take a look at this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, begin with verse 3. Now, I like this passage because I often use it with young people. When I speak at camps and retreats, because young people are always saying, Pastor Van, how do I know the will of God for my life? What they're really saying is, who am I going to marry? You know, what do I do? How do I know God's will for my life? Well, this is a helpful passage because at least part of God's will for your life is spelled out here in no uncertain term. He even says, this is God's will for you. Look at it. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. There's a big word. That you abstain from sexual immorality. You know, the Bible's hard to understand in a lot of places. It's not hard to understand here. This is God's will for you that you be sanctified, that set apart from sin, and that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
You see, even if you know Christ, it is possible to have an issue with body fail. To let your body lead you into sin. To not discipline yourself in a way that you yield into sin, particularly we're talking about this morning, what Paul addresses here, sexual immorality. Uh, Let's just stop and look at that word sanctification for a minute, and let's do it this way. Let's remind ourselves that there is a beginning to our salvation. There is a day, and I've done this repeatedly on the platform, but I want to very quickly remind you of the three stages of our salvation. There is the day you run to the cross, and you admit your sinfulness, and you lay down all of the garbage and baggage of your sin, and God does a marvelous thing. He takes that sin, and He piles it on Christ. He credits it all to Christ as though Christ sinned. He takes the righteousness of Christ, and He gives it to you. When you in humility come and seek repent in a repentant spirit, ask forgiveness of God, and you receive His salvation. And what happens is, you are immediately a born-again person. You are justified. The word is justified. At this moment, God, the judge who is overseeing all of his church, all of his world, has transferred your sin on Christ. He's placed the righteousness of Christ and credited it to your account. And the God, the judge, puts the gavel of heaven down on the bench and he declares you righteous once and for all. That's justification. It's a one-time thing. It only happens once. It sticks. It's good forever. And Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everybody say hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, amen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's justification. That's, that's the first part of our salvation. But then we're still alive. And we're in this body, aren't we? And we're still, we still have the capacity to sin. In fact, we have, we have a capacity to do terrible things with our body. We can abuse our body and we can enter into all kinds of sin with our body, even as a Christian. And so the second phase of our salvation kicks in and God calls us to be sanctified. We're justified, positionally made clean forever, no condemnation But now there's a process of Christian growth going on. And as we live our lives, we are growing in sanctification. The Apostle Paul to young Timothy Timothy put it this way. He said, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And that grace, the same grace of God that brings salvation, that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, the believer in his body can have worldly passions. To say no to that and to live self-controlled, there's that discipline word again, to live self-controlled and upright lives where and when in this present world and age. So we're justified, but we're living a life and we're growing in sanctification. And then we get to a place where what? One day we breathe our last breath. You know you will, right? You know you only get so many breaths. And then one day, it's over. And you know what's so great about that? It is pretty great. Because you're no longer in a battle with the body. You're no, matter, you're no longer fighting the good fight in this filthy world. Immediately you're in the presence of the Lord and the Apostle Paul taught that at that moment to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord and he said that is better by far. 
Because what happens is our salvation is finally complete. In fact, the Bible teaches us that at that point, we who were adopted into the family, our, our, our adoption is finalized. So, and, and, but this is our glorification. All things are made right, and we're no longer in a battle with the body. In fact, the body is now in the ground, rotting. Or it was transformed in the air on the way up if we live to the rapture of the church. But what we have here is we have the glorification, the third and final stage of our salvation. What started out by being justified, condemnation removed from us once and for all, then the process of sanctification, of fighting the good fight against sin and having victory with this body and disciplining ourselves over sin as the Spirit of God lives in us, as we learn what the resurrection power of Christ is in us, and then one day we breathe our last and our salvation is complete and we're glorified. Hallelujah, praise God. That's what we're looking forward to. Right? Okay, so he says back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, that this sanctification process is God's will for your life to be separating yourself from sin. Let's read the rest of the passage. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to do what? You finish it, control his own body. There it is again. It's this body of flesh that each one of you should learn to control his own body in holiness and honor. That means sin free. See, the, on the one side of the coin, you will never not sin. On the other side of the coin, God is always at work in us, removing us from sin. And in fact, there should be some progress. You will never be, obtain a completely sin free life, but you should get as you grow in godliness to where sin has less of a draw for you. And the more godly you are, the more you recognize the heinous ugliness of sin. In fact, somebody said around here once sin, it's worse than you think it is. And in fact, you will grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Word of God, and sin will loosen its appeal on you the more you grow in Christ. But we're in a battle, aren't we? Now look what he says. Let's continue reading. That each one of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Listen, are you picking up from these verses that God expects his people to handle their bodies differently than people who don't know Christ? That God expects his church to be characterized by boys and girls and teenagers and college students and men and women and husbands and wives and oldsters who know how to control their body and they do not act like the world around them. But I think we have a problem here. I think the world has really made inroads on us and we kind of like our bodies to look like and act like the rest of the world. And he says, you are called to purity of life. You are called to a standard of moral purity that is beyond anything that the world knows anything about. You are to look different. And so we return to Proverbs now because we have in our hands a manual of, uh, that is so helpful for, for wisdom living and in fact, on this particular topic, this topic of, of moral purity, Solomon is the author. He's giving us a wisdom that works. And would you agree with me that we must have here on our hands a man who knows an awful lot about this topic? He had 700 wives, 1 Kings 11 says, 700 wives and 300 concubines, and he failed. And he failed over and over, like 999 times. He was an expert in body fail. He succumbed to immorality in his life, to sexual immorality in his life. I want to make clear a couple things before we move into the passage. We are in Proverbs chapter 5. 
In Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have, we have very detailed information as Solomon, writing as a father to a son, warns his son to not succumb to this. Do not give in. Discipline yourself. Do not fail. Young men in the audience today especially, will you listen closely? And will you believe Solomon? He's an expert in body fail. You know, it's, it's a little bit like... Um, if somebody tells you, never put your hand down the garbage disposal when it's running. In fact, don't put it down when it's not running. And you say, okay, and you kind of like, you're going to go put your hand down the garbage disposal? But if the guy who tells you that, he holds up his two nubs and he says, never put your hand down the garbage disposal. I've been there. It don't work well at all. Would you blow my nose for me? <laughs> you see, Solomon is holding up his stubs and he's telling us, don't do this. He's telling his son, don't do this. I've been there. I've done it. I did it over and over again. And I'm telling you, it's, it's a disaster. And so we need to have ears to hear today as we listen from an expert on body fail about the importance of having a sanctified, holy, pure body that is honorable unto God. I want to say a couple things. I want to say them carefully. I want to say, first of all, that to have sexual passion and drive, to even have the desire of a lust that that you are battling with does not make you a pervert. I want to remind us that God is the one who hardwired us in masculinity to desire femininity and femininity to desire masculinity. Of course, in our fallen state, and as we do battle with the body, we have the ability to go outside the limits of God's plan. God was concerned about limiting this, wasn't He? In fact, right away when He gave the law in Exodus chapter 20, do you remember what He said there? In the Ten Commandments, He said, You are not allowed to cross the fence and go with your neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery, He said. Right away, He he put parameters and limitations, but... Sexuality is God's good gift to us. The way of a man and a woman coming together, Proverbs says, is one of the wonders of the world. It's a marvel. And what a beautiful thing it is when it's done and kept within the parameters of God's good plan for us. And so even as you do battle as a man and you you are looking and lusting, or a woman and you're looking and you're vulnerable to a man, that doesn't make you a pervert. You should scare yourself and you should know how capable you are of sin, but that is not a perversion. That is just sin going outside the lines of God's plan. It is God's design for a man and a woman to come together. You just have to do it within His parameters. So if you're battling passion and you're a man for a woman or a woman for a man, that doesn't make you a pervert. I'll tell you what makes you a pervert. And I want to say this carefully. Is if you're after same-sex satisfaction or any other unspeakable kind of sexual sin that God calls an abomination, that is a perversion. Because it is outside the framework. God intended sex to always be between a man and a woman. And it's His gift. And when it gets outside of that, then it's a perversion. It can be sin in and of itself when it's outside of marriage. So adultery, adultery is when a married person has partakes of sexual immorality outside of marriage. And fornication is when somebody who's unmarried engages in acts of sexuality with somebody. Just to be clear of our language here. 
I want to say one other thing as we begin, and I want Proverbs chapter 5 to speak for itself. It's not hard to understand at all. I want to be careful not to get in the way of the Word at all today. Um, But I want to remind you that when you read Proverbs, and you might see this, and you might have already noticed it, that Solomon, in his writing in Proverbs, often, often describes wisdom in the female gender. He talks about her and she, and it's always attractive. He's pointing out to his son that wisdom is like a beautiful woman. Chase after her, all right, in an appropriate way. You will also see, and you'll see it in our passage today, um, that, that folly and foolishness is often couched in female language as well, but it's often in the language foolishness and folly is a woman of the street. She's an immoral woman. And so in the literature of Proverbs, in writing, wisdom is personified as a, as a pure woman, a holy woman, and fornication and sexual, I mean folly and foolishness is often demonstrated by a sinful woman of the street. Somebody who has gone outside of the parameters of God's plan. I think that's true. I also think, though, he's speaking specifically about the reality of body control here. And he knows body fail. Solomon knows body fail at a high level. Well, let's read our text. If you have your notes nearby, we're going to put in some key words that I hope will help you. Um, Proverbs chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. I don't know if I said it yet this service. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 speak in great detail about this topic. We're going to just cover chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. We remind ourselves that Solomon is writing as a father to a son. And so the language of this passage is, is warning the son of the immoral woman. It goes both directions. A woman needs to be warned of an immoral man as well. And the first thing you need to understand, number one on our list, is that this takes discernment. This topic takes real discernment. Awareness. And he tells his son, I want you to be attentive to my wisdom. I want you to have discernment. In fact, incline your ear to my understanding so that you may keep discretion. What is discretion? Discretion is the ability to define reality. Discretion is the ability to define reality. You make choices every day. And you have many choices to make in your lifetime. And discretion is the ability to look at all the choices you make and make the best choice. You have many choices. And when you look at the best choice and you walk away from it and you do something dumb over here, that lacks discernment and discretion. Discretion is, of all the choices I can make in my life, I'm going to have wisdom because I've listened to my father and I'm going to have discernment and I'm going to pick the best decision out of all of them. I'm going to make a good choice. I'm going to make a good choice. And so discernment, number one, is so important here as we enter this study. And we want to be men and women and boys and girls of discretion where we can define reality and we can make the best choice out of all the choices we're going to make. And immediately then warns us um, 
verses 3 and 4, he warns us that we need discernment and discretion because number two, this is a very deceptive and desirable issue. It's very deceptive, and at upfront, it looks very desirable. Number two, it is deceptive, it is desirable. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, verse 3, and her speech is smoother than oil. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It appears to be something very, very desirable. Oh, you notice. Oh, you think about it. Oh, you embed parts of that in your heart and you meditate and you imagine. And you also need to know that in Proverbs, this, the lips of a forbidden woman, it's just not about lipstick or whatever they look like. It, it is a word for her speech. It's a warning that the forbidden woman with her language, with her words, with her speech might be very seductive. For example, in chapter 6, verse 24, chapter 6, verse 24, look at that. He's warning him to preserve him from the evil woman, from the, look at this, the smooth tongue of the adulteress. He's talking about language here. Look at chapter 7 and verse 21. Chapter 7 and verse 21, look what he says. He warns, he uses a big word picture. Looking out the lattice of his window, he watches as it were his son. I think he's talking about himself. I think it's second person writing in chapter 7. When you read that section where he's standing at his window looking out, he's looking, he's writing about himself in like a first person, second person thing. I, I, I forget I said first person, second person because I don't know which person it is. He's pretending he's watching himself go down the street, but he's writing as though it's another person. Look at verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. So we're back in chapter 5 and we're warned, number two, that it's very deceptive. It can appear very desirable, but this one doesn't have a line Verses five, 4 and 5 tell us it's going to end in disaster. That's not one of your numbers, but you can add it. It will end in disaster. Look what she says. That which starts out so desirable, so deceptive, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. It is a disaster. Number two, it is a disaster. Notice then his response to this. He says that her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She'll take you down to the grave. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. What's the idea there? She lives in the moment. She doesn't consider the pathway of life. She doesn't consider the big picture. She is only about this moment. It's an instant gratification world. Now remember, this can be flipped in the same way that a woman can use flattering words to a man. A man can use seductive and flattering words to a woman. All of us are vulnerable to flattering words, especially if on the home front we're not hearing kind words or loving words and we maybe haven't for years. And then somebody begins to talk to you. And it appears so right. And we all know from Debbie Boone back in the 70s that when it feels so right, it can't be wrong. And I'm telling you, it can put you in the grave. It's so wrong. And so it is deceptive. It is 
it is, ends in a disaster. His answer is, as we read on, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. The answer is, number three, part of the answer is distance. Number three, distance. So uh, we need discernment because it's all going to uh, end up so deceptive and it's going to end in a disaster. So keep your distance. Number eight, uh, let verse eight. Number three, keep your distance. Do not go near the door of her house. And, you know, it occurred to me, um, this is the thing. This sin has to have the body there to do it. You can't do this sin without the body. And so he's saying, don't go near the door of her house. If you don't take your body there, you will never do this. Now, I know that we have the, the potential to sin by the very lust and imagination of our own heart. Jesus warned us of that in Matthew, didn't he? But it occurred to me that this topic, it's kind of a little bit simple, kind of like our instruction from Solomon on finances. Remember, we said, you know, this is pretty easy. If you just spend less than you make... You'll be fine. Okay, go home. That's it. Spend less than you make. We're all done. Go home. And this is kind of the point in the message. If you just keep your distance and you never take your body there, you're all good. Go home. That's it. Just don't let your body go there. Because this is a sin of the body. And he warns us about distance. You see, proximity, proximity will get you. Being too close. Paying too much attention to detail. Figuring out how to intersect that person in the hallway at a certain time. Figuring out an excuse to take a paper down to the copy room so when that same person's in the room. But you've got to keep your distance because everybody's vulnerable. The flesh is strong. Sometimes our willpower is weak. Keep your distance. Notice how he develops the passage then. Keep your way far from her in verse 8 and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of the foreigner and in the end of your life you will groan. What's he talking about here? That is interesting. It has life-impacting ramifications this that started out so desirable ends in such disaster. Often, what I think he's describing here reminds me of divorce. Number four, divorce. Let's read it again with that in mind. Look what he says. Keep your way far from her, verse 8. Don't go near the door of her house, lest you end up giving your honor to others and your years. You've invested years in your life to productivity, and it's going to end up mercilessly, and strangers will fill will we'll take their fill of your strength, what you've invested in, somebody else is going to take. It's going to be divided or somebody else is going to move in and use your stuff. Lest strangers fill, take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and in the end you will grow. This, I, I don't know too many country western songs anymore. I used to listen to it more than I do now. Um, for this very topic, you can hardly listen to country western music anymore. It is so sensual. Most of it. But it reminded me of a song, and I googled the words and it came right up. It was Toby Keith's Who's That Man? Let me read the words. You think about these verses we just read. Toby Keith has a song called Who's This? Who's That Man? And it goes like this Turn left at the old hotel. I know this boulevard much too well. It hasn't changed since I've been gone. Oh, this used to be my way home. 
They paved the road through the neighborhood. I guess the county finally fixed it good. It was getting rough. Someone finally complained enough. I fight the tears back with a smile. Stop and look for a little while. Oh, it's plain to see. The only thing missing is me. Because that's my house. And that's my car. And that's my dog in my backyard. And there's the window to the room where she lays her pretty head. I planted that tree out by the fence not long after we moved in. That's my kids and that's my wife. Who's that man running my life? If I pulled in, it would cause a scene. They're not really expecting me. Those kids have been through, I hear. If I pulled in, would would it cause a scene? They're not really expecting me. Those kids have been through. I hear they adjusted well. Turn around in the neighbor's drive. I'd be hard to recognize in this pickup truck. It's just an old fixer-up. Drive away one more time. A lot of things going through my mind. I guess the less things change, the more they never seem the same. Because that's my house, and that's my car. And that's my dog in my backyard. And there's the window to the room where she lays her pretty head. I planted that tree out by the fence not long after we moved in. That's my kids, and that's my wife. But who's that man running my life? Isn't that exactly what Solomon says? You're going to give away your best years and all of the investment of your strength is going to be indulged in and enjoyed by somebody else. It's pitiful. It's pathetic for a moment of pleasure. I'm not suggesting that all divorce is a result of sexual immorality, but often it is. And I have also found, even in the Christian community, when they think they're broken beyond repair and they give up and they divorce, it almost always does become beyond repair when they enter in, even after divorce, sexual immorality, and often they do. You never get too old to not worry about this. Didn't the Apostle Paul say, I punch myself under the eye lest I, after preaching to others, would fail in this area. Divorce is an issue. He gives us a couple suggestions for the cure here. Let's pick it up with verse 12. He'll say, how you, how you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am on the, at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Discipline number five. In the New Testament passages that we started out our our sermon this morning with, didn't he say over and over and over, you must learn to control your body. Now you have God's strength in you, you have the power of Christ in you, but there is a responsibility to personally walk in step with the Holy Spirit and it is your job to control your body. You're not a marionette. And God will let you open doors and go places you don't want to go. And that are outside of his will if you don't discipline your body. Young men learn discipline. Young women learn to be disciplined. Listen and have ears to hear your father and mother's warnings. They know a lot about this subject. Even though you think they're old. They're in their 30s after all. How do they know anything about this subject? And so discipline is part of the key. I wrote a note some time ago. I don't even remember when in my Bible at the end of verse 14. He says, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It occurred to me that sexual sin always happens in private, doesn't it? 
It always happens with the door closed and the lights off. But you're humiliated in the public assembly. It's a private sin with public humiliation. And how shameful. Oh, we've borne testimony of this over and over in the public arena, in churches, in the legislation, in the legislation, houses of Congress and so forth. Governor's mansions, private sin with public humiliation. And then he uses um, a euphemism of a fountain for uh, the very act of coming together, husband and wife. Notice what he says. Not only do you discipline yourself, number five, but you need to delight yourself in your spouse. Drink water, verse 15, from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And so he reminds them, Go back to your wife and delight in your wife. You say, Pastor Van, that's part of our problem. You know, it's really interesting to me. I've had enough years of ministry and experience counseling people and watching people that guys who were a slug and a bore and who gave up on the home front end up in some kind of an emotional affair, some kind of connection, and the sparks start to fly. And all of a sudden, they know all about how to romance a girl. Isn't that interesting? A guy who didn't know how to buy flowers and didn't even know that Martin's Grocery Store has flowers that are pretty good. I I do know that. (laughs) Um, He couldn't figure that out for some reason for 20 years, and now all of a sudden he knows all about it. What is that? I know that this topic is complicated, and I know that there are complex issues that go on in marriages, and you might need deep help to dig out of the trench in which you're in. But I'm going to tell you, Solomon says, number one, discipline yourself, and number two, begin to delight once again in the wife of your youth. Figure it out. Make it happen. He gives a warning then at the end. He warns about... The fact that all of this is exposed and wide open before the Lord. Look at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Verse 21, he reminds you that you are being watched. That ought to bring great conviction upon us. You never can do anything in the dark. It's as though a floodlight is shining and God's eye is there. I've been in Walmart. This is a little bit crass, but I've been in Walmart, like, you know, looking for an oil filter or something and kind of like messing with my nose. And then I realize there's a, a camera and I think, I probably shouldn't pick my nose right here. That guy might be watching me. That's the idea here. The eyes of the Lord are upon you. And you are not doing this in private. And that ought to stir us to the core of our being. And then he warns and he says, Number seven, you need to worry about death. It's death. It brings death. Look what he says. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin, and he dies for lack of discipline. The very lack of discipline, that repeated concept in the message today, ends up 
in disgrace and death. Reminded me of a conversation that I had about chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. A couple of us here at church who bow hunt were talking about this verse. Let me read it. We already read verse 21. Chapter 7, 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her, small, with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. That's death. That's death. Rich Beto said, PV, you know about an arrow through the liver in a deer? I said, tell me. He said, number one, number one, it's a slow death. You shoot, a, you shoot a, a dart through a deer and you make a liver shot. It's a slow death. But number two, it is a certain for sure death. It is a sure death. It might take two days or three days. And that deer lies down and it just lives for two, three, four, even five more days. But it will never live. It cannot live with a dart through its liver. And that's the word picture that Solomon ends with. Isn't he an expert? Standing there with his stubs. Don't put your hands down the garbage disposal. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I've been there. I've done it. I'm an expert in body fail. So what do you do if you're struggling in this area? What if you do if you've got issues going on right now? I really don't know who I'm talking to in this audience about this topic. Well, you know what the answer is to everything at Fellowship Bible Church? Number one, run to the cross. Run to the cross. That's the answer. It's the best answer I can give you. Run to the cross and humble your heart and repent of your sin before a holy God and let the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you from how much sin? All sin. And then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So run to the cross the next thing you do is you get up off your knees at the cross and you run home. Number two, run home. And you look at your wife and you tell her, I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God and I've been to the cross. Will you please forgive me? And you be quiet because it might take her a while. But wife, you forgive him. Pastor Van, you don't know what he's done to me. If he's really been to the cross, you have to forgive him. You don't have a choice. Run to the cross, run home, and now run with Christ. You say, Pastor Van, I pick up my phone, and my, I inevitably go back to the same spot. Ah, I was only going to look once, and that was three years ago, and I've been looking every day ever since. And you got a treble hook in your jaw and it's getting worse and you can feel that you're losing control and you're bringing into your life and you're bringing into ho your home through that pipeline of sewage called the internet, the availability of all kinds of sexual sin and it has a grip on you and you don't know what to do. The only answer for you is going to be to come run with Christ. You have got to, you have got to join the race and you have got to make Christ the center and you've got to repent, go to the cross, go home and make it right, go then and you've got, to, you've got to just consume yourself of walking with Christ and in the Word and growing in Christ so that the Spirit of God dwells in you and you allow His voice to be heard again. You have suppressed it for so long and now you can hear that little voice again. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. And you need accountability of brothers and sisters in Christ 
depending on your gender, and you need help of the body of Christ, run to the cross, run home, and then begin to run with Christ in a whole new way. Victory won't happen overnight. Like I said, I don't know who I'm talking to, and some of you maybe been digging in this ditch for 20 years. And you've been digging it out one shovel full at a time, and it might take one shovel full at a time to put it back, but you can put it back. You must, or you'll die. The pastors and their wives are heading to North Carolina for a conference tomorrow, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We won't be home until late Wednesday night. I want to say something. It is possible that the Spirit of God has convicted you in a way today and you recognize that you are on your way to Sheol, the grave with this thing. And you are recognizing that you must do something about it and you don't know what to do. And it's bigger than you are. I don't have all the answers, but can I invite you to start by texting me? Here's what you do. It's a private sin. You don't want to tell your pastor what you've done. I Trust me. I think I've heard everything I can ever hear about what human beings can do. But here's what you do. I'm going to be gone. You call the office or you text or email Michelle, my administrative assistant in the office, and you say, Michelle, here's all you say. Michelle, Pastor Van said that you would give me his cell phone number. Okay? Pastor Van said you will give me and she will give you the number. And then you text me and you say, PV, this is... And I need to talk. Sometimes, sometimes the way to the cross leads through the pastor's office. You text me, and either Pastor Everett or Pastor Mark or I will call you back. And we will begin to help you figure out how to get help to get out of this ditch. Satan's having a heyday in our culture, and he's having a heyday in churches with this topic. And among our young people... And we need to help each other out. Solomon warns us, heed the warning, have ears to hear. Will you stand with me and let's close in prayer. And so, Father, we humble our hearts in your presence and we ask for your help. Father, would you, through your Holy Spirit, bring a conviction so that there will be steps taken towards the cure here of repentance and forgiveness and restoration, renewing of the mind through that metamorphosis change that we would know the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Father, I don't know my audience on this today as well as you do, and you know where the body fails going on. Would you help us have victory over body fail, over sexual sin? That Jesus Christ would be our pursuit. That Jesus Christ would be our delight. That Jesus Christ would be our joy. And that we would have restored once again the delightful reality of a clear conscience. And establish a right relationship with you once again living within your parameters, living within your boundaries, living for your blessing and not for the fleeting pleasures of a moment. Please help. Please guide and direct. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you as you go. We do need help stacking the chairs.